0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them.
1: I thank our inexperience in that regard because we were not afraid in any sense to ask for more than every lawyer who had um, 20 years of experience who we respect so, so, so much. I said, this is our first trial. I want to do it how we believe in doing it.
2: Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, I am your host, Steve Lowry, along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, happy Fat Tuesday.
3: Um, Thank you so much. I can't wait to celebrate.
2: I'm only saying that because we're both in our Atlanta office, uh, not in the same room, uh, like two doors down from each other. And uh but there's Mardi Gras going on outside down on the street here in uh at, at at the office here in Atlanta.
3: Yeah, they have hurricanes down there. And not that I want one because that just makes me think of having a hangover, but um it is very festive down there.
2: Yeah, music, lots of fun. And uh and you know, uh, but I'm happy to be doing the podcast instead of being down there at uh, at Mardi Gras.
3: Way better than a hurricane. Absolutely. That's for sure.
2: Yeah. And we I, I'm not trying to suggest that we should drink hurricanes and then do the podcast. I don't know how that would turn out.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't rule it out.
2: Right. <laughs> well, uh well, Avin, let me uh, introduce our guests. We've got two great guests uh, uh today uh that tried a uh a, a really tough uh, case that, you know, and we'll talk about it that uh, sounds like it's been through, uh, got some history with it. We are here with Alex Hilliard and John Duff at Hilliard Martinez and Gonzalez out of Corpus Christi, Texas. You can look them up at hmglawfirm.com. That's hmglawfirm.com. All right, now that we've gotten through that.
3: So uh, (laughs) Alex
2: and John, how are you guys doing? We're great, guys. Thanks for having us on. No, absolutely. Thank you for coming on. This is a a fascinating case to talk about. And it sounds like uh, it's had some history and and still got uh, still got some work to go.
1: Absolutely. You know, this case is still going now, but I will let John address the early history of this case because I was brought on uh, coincidentally about a week before trial. So (laughs) I was more of a trial team member and John worked this case up from day one.
2: I, I, I always love that when I when you you come into the case right at the last minute and have to learn the file. That's a it's a it, it can only go one of two ways. It can either go great or terrible.
1: Yeah, that was a that was a, a scary experience. But luckily, you know, John's the most organized person in this law firm. So it was like coming into what I always dreamed was a trial preparation. How it should be done, the way files should be organized. Everybody had printed the witness binders, everything was, the depot designations were done, you know, there was no stress in regard to, oh man, we have to do all this stuff before trial. It was really a creative strategy type uh, meeting that we had about a week before and we proceeded from
2: there well it 's a great great work, and we 'll talk about it, but let me tell our listeners uh, who you two are. Uh, both of you went to st mary 's Law School in San Antonio, Texas, and as we learned right before the podcast, met each other uh, first day of law school became uh, best friends and uh, and are now working on the, working at the same firm, working on cases together and uh, and knocking it out of the park. Um, Alex is is a regular speaker at the Texas Bar, the Texas Board of Legal Specialization, and has been invited to the Litiquest Count Conference. Uh, he is also on the Plaintiffs Litigation Committee for the MSU uh, Nassar cases. That's the sexual molestation of, by the team doctor up in uh, up in Michigan uh, cases. And uh, and Alex, as I saw uh, you were an academic all American tennis player at the University of Texas.
1: I was. I was. That was a huge part of. My upbringing was tennis. Uh, My dad was a great tennis player, and so I basically grew up with a racket in my hand. And I thought that that was my future until I realized that Roger Federer and Andy Roddick and all those guys had a lot more going for them than I did, so I decided by my hand in the practice of law.
2: (laughs) I, I, I guess I should ask, when was the first time you beat your dad? Sixteen years
1: old, I believe it was June second.
2: <laughs> I knew you. I knew you'd know that.
1: <laughs> it's a really big deal. <laughs>
2: nice. Well, and as I said, John, John is also a graduate of St. Mary's Law School. He w- was a Presidential Scholar at Texas A&M, and uh, in in mock in uh, in law school, John was heavily involved in mock trial and was named at the Capital City Challenge the best defense advocate and. um, Led his team to a national championship at the William Daniel National Invitational Mock Trial Competition in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and is a member of the National Order of Barristers. And so, uh, um, start you know you you finish law school and then you guys come out take on your first case together and uh, and it it doesn't end. (laughs) Yeah, we're I mean we're excited
0: to kind of start working together. You know, it took us a while to actually get our first trial together. You know, we helped out with so many trials, but actually like give the reins over to us and let us, you know, run our show how we want to. It was actually, it was was an amazing experience. Even more special, I gotta
1: interrupt him real quick because mock trial, it's hard to hear that this was our first trial because we had about 18 mock trial tournaments. And the very last one that we did was the Atlanta tournament that you just mentioned where we ended up winning the national championship. But when we walked in the trial for this case, which was our first official trial as lawyers, (laughs) It didn't feel like our first trial. So we were able to not have that nervousness about not knowing the procedure of if they object during my questioning, how do I respond? Or uh, how do I argue pretrial evidentiary issues if the judge raises something specific and random? We had done it every way, shape and form. Because
0: we had a great mock trial coach at St. Mary's. Yeah, Um, I was going to say a big shout out to Nicole Thornbrough. She made us wear suits and ties Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday from (laughs) 10 till midnight all day Saturday and Sunday in an actual courtroom. So we feel more comfortable in suits and in a courtroom than we do sometimes in pajamas in our own bedroom, you
2: know. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that really is a testament to your mock trial program that uh, that you worked so hard at it. And then, you know, as soon as you finish law school, come out and you're able to try cases.
3: But for sure, I've never been as nervous. I was at moot court instead of mock trial, but I have never been as nervous in court as I, as I was during moot, moot court. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> never, like that was the most nervous I was compared to, compared yeah. to that. Everything else is like way more relaxed.
0: And that mock trial term was funny because we were against all Georgia schools in the semifinals. So, oh, no, little St. Mary's from Texas against all the Georgia law schools. So, <laughs> how we won. I think we used some Georgia dialect or some right, right. <laughs> to make them feel like you know we're we're from there. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. used y'all a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, let's talk about the case that we're, that uh, that you guys tried back in uh, December of 2019. The case is Denise uh, Denise Mares, uh, individually and on behalf of Juan Perez versus INR Trucking, Isaac Rodriguez and Rodriguez Trucking. It was tried in San Patricio County, Texas, which uh, from what I gather is uh, not the easiest place to go and get a plaintiff's verdict. So...
1: San Patricio County is not known as one of the most pa- plaintiff-friendly verdicts in Texas uh, — sorry <laughs> plaintiff-friendly jurisdictions in Texas when it comes to the type of jury panel that you're going to get. You go to San Patricio County, and just like we did, we had no idea that this was going to be the process. So we walk in, and the judge allows 100 panelists to walk in the courtroom. And it was surprising in the sense of this is a much smaller case. And there's no reason to have a hundred panelists. But how they do it in San Pat County is after our voir uh, dire and jury selection is done, the rest of the panelists will move on to the next yes. trial that is going on in the next courtroom. And so we just happen to have the first pick of the litter, or it can be thought about in a reverse sense. Uh, because we, we were only allowed a certain amount of strikes and right. we had to end up with the jury that, that we had, which ended up being a great jury because they were very knowledgeable about the facts and the issues as it relates to construction and the work that our client was doing at the time of the incident.
2: Yeah, was. that's similar to uh, um, some of the counties, some of the rural counties in Georgia, uh, Effingham uh, County comes to mind where you actually go in about two weeks before your trial starts uh, and then you and everybody else who's got a trial that's going to be starting, uh, you know, like I'll spend a, a few hours picking my jury and then the next group goes in, they pick their jury and they're all picking from the same panel and somehow they work it out that everybody gets uh, gets the right jurors. Um but uh but let me tell you about the case uh so first of all this involved the death of juan perez uh and juan uh, was up on top of a roof a uh, metal corrugated roof uh that had rotted or had rotting areas and had some fiberglass corrugated roof areas as well Uh, and he had been told to go up there by his employer although that was a hotly disputed issue and he fell through the roof uh, about 12 feet down onto a concrete floor and um, and passed away. He, he didn't he didn't die immediately. It took some time. Uh, and I know and I know that was a, another issue at the trial. But the uh, end result uh, was a verdict for his uh, his the survival claims and the wrongful death claim of eight million dollars and then a punitive damage award of ten million dollars for a total of uh, 18 million dollars and um and so first of all i, I just want to say to both alex and john i mean obviously that's fantastic work the thing that really caught both Vaughn and i um it, it caught our eye is that it was a big issue in your case whether or not Juan was an employee of uh, inr trucking uh or of isaac rodriguez and um in Georgia, for instance, um, you know we have the workers' comp bar. If we had proved that he was working for uh, the the employer, then we're going to be uh, um, limited in what we can recover to workers' comp. Um, but in 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 Texas, I gather it's uh, must be completely different because one of the things that you were proving to the jury was not only that your client was an invitee onto the roof, but that he was an employee. Of INR Trucking and Isaac Rodriguez, can you talk about the the law in Texas a little bit and how that how that plays out?
0: Yeah, so um, the workers' compensation st- statute it has provides the exclusive remedy, like you're saying here in Texas. But if you are a non-subscriber to the workers' compensation program, then you don't you aren't afforded all the benefits that workers' comp provides uh, to employers. So um, when we knew that we had this issue of an employee that worked there. tirelessly for 17 years and he had no workers compensation provided for him for his family. Um, You know, we knew that this was a case that we had to, you know, get to trial because all we had to do is prove, you know, 1% of negligence against the employer and we're entitled to recover since they chose not to subscribe to workers compensation. So, you know, that was a a big part for us and that's why you see in the jury charge that, you know, one of the first questions is, you know, was he an employee of INR Trucking and Rodriguez Trucking? And The jury found that he was.
2: So then uh, I noticed that there was an an apportionment question on there as well, uh, where they could apportion between the employer and between Mr. Perez. And and at least it looked to me like that part of the verdict form wasn't filled out. Um, But would the jury have been allowed to apportion between the two of them once you established that he was an employee?
1: No. So if the uh, client is found to be an employee and the employer is a non-subscriber to workers comp. So the jury question is, did the negligence, if any, because even if it's 1%, then the apportionment okay. question mm-hmm. doesn't matter at all because 1% of negligence, if you're a non-subscriber and they're found to be an employee equals 100%. Okay.
2: Okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense then. And 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 so that's why that question on the on the verdict form was not answered. Yes. Right. So talk uh, us through a little bit of, of how the defendants chose to defend this case, because what I took away from uh, looking at the materials you sent us was that they were claiming that he was a trespasser, uh, that he uh, wasn't an employee, he wasn't allowed to be up there. Um, and then it, it sounded like there was even an allegation that they delayed in calling 911 in order to get their story together while uh, Mr. Perez was laying there dying. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, you kind of touch on a couple different things, but yeah, essentially, you know, they're saying
0: that, you know, he was trespassing on the property that no one knew he was out there the whole time. And so when we discredited that at trial, then they had, a, you know, kind of step back and say, oh, well, you know, we knew he was there, but he, you know, he was allowed to be on, he wasn't allowed to be on the roof. He was trespassing on the roof, but he wasn't trespassing on the physical property because he was a truck driver. And so, um, you know, they tried to throw a bunch of things at the wall to see what stuck, but, it, you know, the jury didn't buy any of it.
3: And what about, did that actually, um, did, did you have an indication that there was, there was a sort of delay in, in sort of reporting it while they were f- figuring things out?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, um Estefania Rodriguez, the daughter of Isaac Rodriguez Senior, she testified that um she didn't see him at any time, you know, before her dad told her to call nine one one. But we have, you know, audio recording from the actual when when she called nine one one and when they showed up and did an interview of her. And she said that she saw him there at six AM in the morning when she got there. And so for her to call at noon. And say, no, this would happen, but he fell you know fifteen minutes after she had gotten there at six a m There was this large gap, and you know by the time everyone showed up, he was um, you know already deceased, and so there was this big gap that no one could explain, and you know we're still kind of asking questions you know what was happening during this time so uh, uh,
2: so the gap then would have been a gap of hours before they called nine one one they actually argued in closing. That seven minutes
1: is what plaintiff had contended was the amount of time that they failed to render aid and failed to you know, seek assistance in terms of calling 911 for um, our client. What we then argued was that seven minutes is what they used to come up with the concocted story that they showed up to trial with. Uh, before the police got there, because as soon as the police got there, they were interviewed and it was recorded. And so during closing arguments, the defense lawyer kind of handed us a little bit of a a present when he said, plaintiffs are arguing that within seven minutes, this entire family uh, failed to call 911 and came up with this full concocted story which fit perfectly into why, why each witness couldn't keep their story straight about what had happened, what they had seen, and their deposition testimony about what they had seen. Um, so seven minutes was kind of the
0: time that everything was finalized on.
3: Got so, it. I mean, I... Yeah,
0: but the way the testimony kind of came out, though, I mean, it, you know, there's her saying she saw him at 6 a.m., and then, then them saying, you know, that they called right after. So there was a lot of inconsistent testimony, which made the cross examinations even more fun. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Well, and so speaking of that, we were, we were talking before we started recording about, um, you all doing a lot of depositions by video you, and, you know, editing those, having those ready to use. Um, I know one of the things that our firm does a trial is, um, you know, especially if you're crossing somebody that you anticipate is, Going to have maybe some issues with prior statements, having you know video clips ready versus reading the deposition and having those ready to play. Um, is that how you all sort of approach it as well? Are you are you impeaching them with with videos of themselves testifying?
0: So the way this worked is, you know, I took all the depositions in this case, and so when Alex was doing cross examination, I would you know have the, tr- the whole transcript in my hand kind of going through it, waiting for him to, waiting for them to slip up. And I just flip to the page. Alex just pretty much turns around, doesn't even look at me. I just throw the transcript in his hand. <laughs> he said, sir, don't you remember taking a deposition on this date? Don't you remember testifying under oath on this date? And and so, you know, we practice that a lot in mock trial. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it was, it was kind of fun doing it again. I have been a part of
1: trials where you are allowed to impeach witnesses with prior video deposition testimony Um, I think this is a good segue into how we were uh, asked to keep the expenses low on this for our client, given the fact that, um, and I'll let John address this more fully, but since they were a non-subscriber and since they did not have any insurance coverage, allegedly, um, and pursuant to what was represented to us by counsel, there was no money behind this uh, operation this business that seemed to be very lucrative but uh you know they said there's not a lot of money behind this so y'all aren't gonna make a lot of money for this case which is one of the things that we're gonna be forever grateful for because that means that two associates who haven't had that much trial experience get the nod to do this trial
2: uh ivan tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are Oh
3: man, we are, well we're plaintiffs lawyers, we're trial.
2: Yeah, we are plaintiffs lawyers and plaintiffs lawyers only get paid when what happens?
3: When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial.
2: That's right, when you close the case, as as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing, that's when you get paid. (laughs) And the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about Casepacer.com. That's Casepacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms.
3: Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it.
2: Right. So if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access Case Pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system.
3: Yeah. For our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients.
2: Yeah. So it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud
3: (laughs) Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere.
2: We encourage our listeners to check out casepacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's casepacer.com.
3: And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors.
2: So after he falls uh, and, you know, and I I think there was a, another uh, person up on the roof um, named uh, Rosario Hernandez, who had testified that the, it kind of sounded like he was saying that, that Mr. Perez. Sort of just followed him up there on the roof, and he told him to get down uh, but at, but after he falls, then then there's an OSHA investigation and um, and so I guess I'd like to hear I mean since it sounds like you weren't allowed to or, or uh, uh, you know uh, didn't have the uh, the budget to hire an expert, were you able to then kind of use the OSHA report in uh, in, in bolsting your case? Yeah, actually,
0: the um, OSHA report was very helpful in this case. Um, I believe there were some objections to try and keep it out that we fought to keep it in. And so we used this pretty much every chance we got with every witness that we brought up to the stand. And, you know, little did we know when we got done with the jury verdict being read to us and we talked with the jurors, you know, there was about three or four people that have been dealing with OSHA probably longer than we've been alive. And so they were very versed with OSHA. They know the regulations. They know to, the fall protection equipment that should have been provided to Juan Perez, the the guarded skylights that should have been provided by INR Trucking. So, you know, we didn't try and invade the province of the jury. You know, we hope that they had the information, uh, or at least the knowledge to, you know, <laughs> it's kind of hard yeah. to explain, but. Yeah. No, I'll jump in there
1: because it it was something where you walk into a trial and. I think this helped us because as associate attorneys, we are focused on a certain set of things, and it's not trying to be experts in the subject matter that we're about to talk about. So we didn't pretend to be experts at OSHA. In fact, we embraced the trial flaws and errors that naturally happen in trial when you misspeak, such as, uh John happened to, during the middle of a questioning witness, he happened to misread the acronym of, I don't think it was OSHA,
0: but. Yeah, I said, I messed up the acronym for OSHA pretty bad. And one of the jurors <laughs> afterwards said he gave me a one point deduction, but that he would take it from there for me. So he like <laughs> right. I got it now, guy, you know, let me, let me lead you <laughs> to the finish line. So that was. Pretty funny. And that was special
1: because after speaking with a lot more experienced attorneys who reflected and, and were there watching, they said, you, you guys were able to allow the jury to take hold of this case and feel like they still had a job to do in the sense that you didn't take away everything that they're uh, supposed to do, where they say, Listen, the lawyer is the expert, they've already gotten all this, you know. We empowered the jury in the sense that as soon as we were done with closing, they knew that they had their race to run and they were ready to run it. Um, So that was special. And it was unintentional in the sense that we didn't plan on uh, showing up and and messing those things up, but we just planned on being who we were and the fact that our inexperience and our dedication to, what we know and what we believed in happened to help us out in that regard. Um,
3: so I, I, so I have a question about OSHA because I, um, I deal with cases where the OSHA has investigated a lot, and sometimes in those cases we will agree with defense counsel not to use the report depending on what's going on, or we'll agree to use part of it. Um, and sometimes I have tried to get more information from. Um, from OSHA or from the investigator, and I've usually found that to um, uh, be a challenge. They're usually not, not interested in getting involved. Um, but so I'm, I'm interested, because you guys talked about there was a little bit of a fight on that, I guess, how that played out, how you were able to get it into evidence, and, and whether you did have any cooperation in your case from OSHA, other than the, the report itself.
0: We had no cooperation with OSHA. It's a very small town, this area. So we knew that it wouldn't be very helpful to try and speak with them or at least reach out to them about this because it is a small town and they do know all the local businesses there. And this was a, you know, local business It's you know, Isaac Rodriguez senior had been there, um, gosh, 60 something years. He was, you know, pretty old or elderly, excuse me. But we, We're able to work some agreements out with the defense counsel about some of the OSHA citations because he wanted to use them in his case chief and his arguments. So it was kind of a little bit of an exchange back and forth. But the stuff that he wanted out, we fought hard to keep in a lot of hearsay and a lot of opinions there. But the judge seemed to go with our arguments and let them come in. And that was surprising because the defense counsel
1: seemed to think that some of the OSHA citations actually supported their theory of uh, how they were going to defend this case. Because what we learned when they invited the other person who was also asked to replace the skylight along with our client um, on the day of the incident, what we learned when the defense counsel during his direct said, Now, can you please turn to the jury and explain to them what this OSHA citation really means?" And, of course, that would draw an objection in any courtroom, because who is this layperson that's about to explain to the jury what this OSHA citation really means when they have the document up on the projector? And the judge overrules the objection, uh, overrules our request to Vordire the witness on his qualifications <laughs> to answer the question and what the witness says is he goes the employee mentioned in this citation was me. it was me who was uh, the reason that this employer was cited it wasn't uh, it wasn't your client who ended up getting killed it was me, and that was not the uh you know everything has been misunderstood up to this point because yes they were cited yes they did something wrong however one of the biggest things that he wanted to get across to the jury was that whoever y'all are here today to either award money to or not um obviously which was the the wife of the deceased uh, um Mr Perez He wanted to establish to the jury conclusively that the person who was mentioned in the OSHA citations was not Mr. Perez. It was himself. And that was a position that uh, we then immediately saw. That's why defense counsel wanted these OSHA citations in. And we kind of sat there looking at each other at counsel table and I was giddy because <laughs> yeah. I, I, that was that was John's cross.
0: And I knew that John was going to be chomping at the bit to uh, explore that a little bit. Yeah, I requested this, guy's <laughs> gentle, this gentleman's deposition for the two years I had the case because I knew he was the one up there with Juan Perez at the time of the fall. And they said that they had no idea where he was, that they weren't in control of him anymore, that he was in Alabama, all, all of this stuff. And so when they told me that he was finally going to be at trial, I was like, this is my witness. I got him. Whatever he says, I'm ready for it. So hopefully he does put his foot in his mouth like he did. That was an extremely interesting witness that uh, I'll let you you tell the story because wow. So the cross-examination of him, he said that he drove to San Patricio County to be there because he had to have his, his say in this matter and that no one brought him out there. No one flew him out there that he drove by himself. Um, that it was his moral obligation to be there. And so Alex then crosses Isaac Rodriguez Sr., his boss, and Alex pretty much gets him to admit that he, Isaac Rodriguez Sr., flew out Rosario Hernandez. So everything Rosario said about him driving out there, that it was moral obligation to be there, it was all taken away by the owner of the company. Um,
1: Which I guess we got lucky on because the owner of the company, the main defendant, had a translator while he was on the stand. So as I'm crossing him, and any lawyer who's ever cross-examined a witness that has a translator next to them knows how painfully slow and time. So I'm looking back the entire time at John, and I'm thinking and asking him kind of under my breath, am I good? Do I have enough? Because I know it's been quadrupled the time that it would be with any normal witness. And he's, you know, keeps putting little sticky notes saying no, 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 no. <laughs> so what we learned in one of the first questions I ask is, uh, did you hear Mr. Rosario Hernandez, the witness who said it was his moral obligation to be there at trial and hadn't been paid and had drove? Um, did you hear him say that? Yes. I said, did you contact him before this trial? He says, well, of course. I said, okay, what did y'all talk about? And the owner of the company, the defendant, through a translator. So, you know, given this is all taking a lot more time than I'm explaining it right now. He says, well, I called him. I said, you got to be here. And I'm going to pay for your plane ticket. Um, I'm going to get you here as soon as you can. And, you know, you are the eyewitness who needs to say what we need you to say. and." It was a moment when the translator told me that, mind you, that you don't know what to do as a trial lawyer in any situation as you as you hear that answer. So I'm standing in the well and I just had to take it in. And that wasn't part of my cross. It wasn't part of my cross-examination outline. No, I had my impeachment points built in, but All I felt like was the right thing to do was to just look at the jury and give them the same silent uh, feeling that I had, which was kind of an incredulous, "Are you serious? Uh, Can you believe this?" type of deal. And they were all looking right back at me as if uh, you know this was some sort of prank that was being pulled on them, and they were, you know, they were pissed about it because. These are hardworking people in San Pat County that were missing their jobs, missing their families, and all of a sudden it becomes clear to them that the defendants and every witness produced by the defendants has come in there with a falsified story, and their only goal is to try and pull one over uh, the jury's head. And they're way too smart to fall for that.
2: Yes. And so one, one thing I wanted to ask, you said this was a small county. Did the jurors know um, this company or this family, the defense?
0: Yeah. During board dire, there was basic questions. Do you know any of the plaintiff? Do you know the defendants? And gosh, I don't know, 20 twenty people maybe raised their hand, and said I know the law firms or I know uh, this man, this this woman. So you 20 people kind of off the bat were just are automatically gone. And that's probably why San Patricio brings in a hundred veneer panelists. So right. that it's, it's a small town. They know each other that they can excuse some yeah. of them. The family was widely known in that county. It was, it was scary in
1: the sense that we heard from many people that this is not the family that you ever want to trifle with. Um, you know, you go to them to ask for sort of like the when you go to the Godfather, <laughs> right, how, right, you, know, you you don't file a lawsuit against.
3: Um, well, so one of the things I was wondering, and our, our our listeners can't really see what it looked like, but looking at the pictures that y'all had, and it, I think might have been your closing, looking at the pictures of the roof, it does look pretty scary. And I'm wondering how you dealt with the idea of you know an assumption of the risk type argument or an open and obvious danger type argument that it, it, it can't, it does the pictures aren't great in terms of it looking super hidden that it might be, um, dangerous up there. So how did you sort of help the jury understand that those issues?
1: I think that the biggest thing was, uh, You know, I always love it when I have John come on one of my cases because he provides a fresh set of eyes when I'm too far in the weeds, as you should be. And when I was crossing the owner of the company during trial, I held up a picture of what it would look like from our client's viewpoint while he's standing on top of the roof versus what it would look like as you're standing inside the building looking up at the roof. Okay, I will tell you the contrast between those two is the difference between when you're, when you're on the ground and you're looking up, it is a roof that you would never, ever hire anyone to climb on. You would never uh, basically put anyone in that situation because the only thing you would, should be concerned about is getting yourself out of that building because it might crumble on you. <laughs> right. Mind you, the view that our client had from on top of the roof was scary in the sense that there was no rust, there was no deterioration. He could not see any sort of dangerous condition that what we learned from the owner of the company who actually lived inside that building. Um, which we also learned through cross-examination. He goes, well, I sleep in that building every night. uh, And I see every day when I look up the rusted, deteriorated conditions. So, of course, I wanted to get it fixed. And But when you look from an aerial viewpoint down, you cannot see any of the rust of the corrosion. So it was just as simple as really holding two pictures right next to each other of uh, what our client would have seen versus what the owner would have seen.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and it also makes sense. I mean, it, it does cut both ways. I talk about it looking dangerous, but as you point out, then that's, that's also an indication that, Hey, don't send somebody up there.
0: So, exactly. yeah. yeah. And you know, our, our guy, our decedent, um, he was a truck driver most of the time, 17 years. He was a truck driver. He wasn't a roofer. His widow testified that night before, said, I'm not, in Spanish, I'm not a a roofer, I'm a driver. I don't know why I have to go up here and do this, but he was a hardworking man. He went to work to feed his wife and family, so he had to go up there and do it, essentially.
2: So I guess I'm trying to you know think about the the defense in this case. Um, I saw through your exhibits you had a number of uh, uh, you know um, timesheets where your client had gone in and worked. You had a number of checks written from the from the owner to your client. I mean, how did they realistically expect that they were going to be able to make a straight face argument to the jury that your client wasn't working for it? them at the time. And, and, and I thought I saw, and I, and I guess I'll add to that. I thought I saw somewhere that there was some allegation that your client might have been fired a few weeks before or something.
0: The funny thing about those documents that were produced to us, they were produced to us on the Monday of trial, all the pay stubs, all, all the checks, everything was produced to us on the Monday of trial. So it, it was interesting that we got that. I think we would have still been successful if we didn't have that. But they didn't produce produce us any pay stubs, anything for about six weeks prior to his death. So that's where their theory came in that he was terminated. He wasn't an employee of them anymore because there's no pay stubs. But oh, here are all these you know several years of checks and pay stubs saying that he was a laborer, a truck driver. I think those were handed to us in hard copies. We were standing outside the courtroom the day that we were about to start or yeah. actually. <laughs> and it's kind of funny. We, you know, me and Alex, we get under, underestimated a lot being young bucks or young attorneys. And I, this Joel Thomas, he, he's great guy. He's his family built that town and he's very known in that town. Um, so I don't think he was kind of ready for what we could do at trial or, or he was underestimating us a lot or thought someone would come in but um, you know it it was just kind of crazy that we were just underestimated at every turn and we just you know kind of proved him wrong and you know proved ourselves that we could do this and that we're you know we're here to play
2: all right Yvonne this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning and I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial we always have Bob or Liz or one of their other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations and I'm talking of course about legal technology services and you can find them at LTSAtlanta.com
3: Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website.
2: Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at LTSAtlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. And
3: Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh
2: yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally <laughs> screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials Podcast when you call in the legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials Podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta. Dot com Legal Technology Services, uh, give them a try. Well, I mean, it almost seems like it would become, uh, I mean, I don't want to say comical, but I mean, the, this defense saying he wasn't working for him. I mean, at some point, they had to realize that that defense wasn't playing with the jury. No, no, comical is the right word to use. Okay, yeah.
1: <laughs> Hitting on the last thing that you had asked in your previous question, Steve, was that uh, you did see somewhere that they had said he failed the drug test. Right. (laughs) And that was during one of the first witnesses. Um, So we had a lot of pretrial rulings that were granted in our favor, such as any mention of a prior arrest, prior failed drug test, any sort of, uh, um, you know, the, the standard 409 type deal and anything not disclosed in request for production up to this point in trial so we have a witness that gets on the stand and mind you every witness that testified besides our client was related to each other they were all part of this family so i think it was the grandson of the owner of the Mm -hmm. company that i was crossing isaac the third and he says well your client was fired in january actually so he was not an employee at the time and I start my impeachment process. I said, Really? I said, Is that the first time that you've ever said that here today? He said, He failed a drug test. And that is something where, when a witness says it and you're not expecting that piece of testimony or evidence to be a part of the defense case, because that's a big deal, right? Um, You know, the jurors' heads all shot up. (laughs) And I felt it out of my peripheral vision. And so I knew that I could either, you know, cry to the judge and object for this witness violating the court's pretrial rulings, yada, yada. Um, But I really didn't feel like that was the right idea. So uh, I said, hey, let me ask you a quick question. Do you know that when we sent requests for documents in this case, um, we asked for stuff like that? for failed drug tests, for any sort of employment files. Um, I said, did you did you know that, that we had asked for documents in this case, such as those types of documents that you just talked about? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a part of, you know, collecting the documents <laughs> and giving them to you guys. I said, well, in those documents, there's no drug test ever. There's no failed drug test. There's no mention of a policy where, you have to drug test your employees. And uh, I said, why would you have not given
0: that to us if you had it? And And after he did that, the judge admonished the whole family, like (laughs) do not, he knew that they had an agenda. He even said that, you know, you guys are trying to put this agenda out there, answer the questions and admonish them pretty badly. And one of the jurors afterwards, when we were asking them questions, she was saying that, you know, if there was a drug test, they would have been waving around in the courtroom. They would have been pulling right. that everywhere. But the fact that there wasn't a drug test, it, it was clear that they were just trying to make the story up and have this agenda to, to distract the jury. I think that was in response when we asked one of the jurors, was there
1: anything else that you would have liked to hear more? Of? And they said, well, hell yeah, we would have liked to hear more about that drug test. <laughs> right. We quickly decided during deliberations that that was just one of the numerous lies that they had told because they would have been uh, having that as their first exhibit if it was yeah. actually true.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, and I, and I guess they would have had to. It sound like your client... Uh, 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 Mrs. Mrs. Mares, uh, did very well on the stand, but I mean, it would have to mean that, that, uh, Mr. Perez was lying to her about where he was going every morning. Yep. Yeah. Uh, h- how did your client do on the stand and, and, um, and how did she come across the jury? I thought
0: she came across great. You know, she, w- they'd only been married for about I think eight months at the time of his death. They had dated for a while, long courtship, told some very heartwarming stories on the stand. But part of our closing argument was they, they hadn't even gotten past their honeymoon stage yet. Right. That, that's why the, her mental anguish damages were so large and, you know, the loss consortium for her because they didn't even get a chance to, to be a married couple yet. You know, they were still getting off the, the honeymoon bliss, if you will. So it, I think that's resonated a lot with, with the jury. And it was pretty amazing, too, because that same courtroom where we were doing that trial, and that's where they actually got married in front of another judge there. So it was a weird full circle for her to come, you know, but I think the jury loved her testimony and thought she was real and wasn't being fake at all. And when she was crying when the jury read the verdict, it was real tears and almost relief for her to know that her husband was taken care of by this county that he lived in for so long. Every single juror gave her a hug as (laughs) they walked out of the
1: home after reading their verdict, which was very special.
3: Um, So speaking of their verdict, um, this verdict form is crazy.
2: Yeah, I know. (laughs) I was thinking the same thing.
3: (laughs) Um, It is for, I think this might be, or at least part of this might be on y'all's firm website, it looked like, but it's like... It's 14, 15 pages. There's, there's like legal charges, instructions, definitions in the verdict form. Uh, Do they always look like this in Texas?
0: Yes. And we made the strategic decision to cut out some of the defendants because we filed suit pretty much on the statute of limitations. So we had eight or nine defendants and the evidence showed it was Isaac Rodriguez Sr., the patriarch of this company. So we cut out a lot of it or else it would have been about 48 pages probably
1: in total. We felt like there was enough evidence for the jury uh, uh, the night before closing that they would be able to find wrongdoing. But in Texas, the way that the uh, Texas pattern jury instructions work, is that it's confusing enough and after every trial you go to you will have jurors that say listen we just could not get past the definitions and the instructions for these legal terms and we wanted to say yes but but we were prevented from doing so by what we either didn't understand or couldn't agree upon within the definition so we felt like we had a good shot at them wanting to say yes and if we just gave them one target, one defendant, then we would have a better shot at getting them to say yes, rather than them finally kind of throwing their hands up in the air and saying, uh, this is way, way, way too confusing, which
0: you hear a lot in Texas. But yes, they are usually that long and poor Judge Flanagan for having to read that whole thing. <laughs> I
3: mean, it's crazy. I mean, we'll have long charges, <clears throat> but usually they won't be, some. and sometimes the written charges will go back, but they won't be incorporated into the form of the verdict itself. So, But I mean, it sounds like y'all did a good job, certainly in getting them to understand it, but also it looks like from your your um. Closing PowerPoint that you spend some time walking through it and sort of telling them what you think they should do
0: that's something that we loved doing the night before. we were up you know, very late that night working on this PowerPoint and we wanted to walk them through and how to fill out this jury charge and some of our friends that came to the closing arguments and our significant others they showed up and they had never seen a jury charge before, even though that they're with attorneys you know and they loved actually being walked through the whole jury charge, having to explain to them and why they should be awarding money on this chart or this part of it and why they should be awarding money on this other part, what this gross negligence means. It was very helpful for the jury to not just have a judge read 14 pages to them, but to have an attorney up there and explain how we want them to fill it out and fill it out together. One of our favorite things is to, of course,
1: many focus group things like, uh, phrases and arguments in, in our closing with, uh, my wife, Brit and John's, uh, girlfriend Taylor, which this is a story for another day, but, but, uh, (laughs) that is the whole reason that I know my wife is because it was John and his girlfriend that, uh, set us up on a blind date. Um, which as if there wasn't kind of enough, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> happiness in our friendship already. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, I know my wife because of this guy. Um, but but I want to go back to what he said because every day after trial, we would drive back from San Patricio County and we would come to this office and we would come into the war room and we would do our best because we didn't have uh, copies of the transcripts to remember what was uh, said by the witnesses and plan out our next day. So this was a a three-day trial. Every witness finished their testimony within one day. And so after we got through five witnesses and judge says, all right, y'all are closing tomorrow morning. Uh, We meet in the war room after a a dinner. And I think a a very well-deserved beer (laughs) and calm our nerves and so we decide what we're gonna do in closing and that was one of the most, um, I will say, special experiences of our lives because we had the framework given to us of what a death case in a premises liability trial is worth, what you don't wanna anger the jury with if you ask for, especially in a Texas conservative county like San Pat, and Based upon the evidence and testimony that you think that you have, how much do you feel comfortable with as you're sealing before the jury's just going to look at you and say, oh, come on now, you know, and, and, and you'll lose them. And I didn't think that we had that in this case. And we went back and forth on the jury charge because John was going to do the first part of closing where he went through the jury charge and um, I was going to do the rebuttal. And that was something where we kind of threw the script and the normal playbook out the door. And I thank our inexperience in that regard because we were not afraid in any sense to ask for more than every lawyer who had um, 20 years of experience who we respect so, so, so much. I said, this is our first trial. I want to do it how we believe in doing it. And we both agreed at, at one 30 in the morning that it was not going to be what any of the, uh, uh, lawyers had told us
0: to ask for, uh, cause we believed it was worth more. And we literally looked at each other that night and we just said, you know, our moms taught us if we don't ask for it, we're not going to get it. So right. we just times <laughs> all the numbers by two and, Think we did ask for probably somewhere around 45 and, and got 18, but we did ask for 20. You know, what we've gotten then at that point. So,
1: and I, I, think some,
0: I think some of the jurors wanted to give us a whole 45 and they probably met somewhere around the yeah. middle to get the 18. I wanted to go through every question and have kind of a personal moment with it because you're not
1: allowed to tell the jury to put themselves in your client's shoes or, um, uh, you know, Miss Mottage's shoes, the widow. But I said, let's do it here in this war room tonight. I said, would you take this amount to lose your girlfriend? I said, would I take this amount to lose my wife? Because um, I've been married for less than they have. And he tells me the dollar amount, and I immediately, you know, uh, I want to flip the table over at him, because <laughs> it's insulting <laughs> for something like that. And I said, let's do what we believe in here. and and. I really think our inexperience, because we had not been, I guess, jaded by uh, prior settlements, prior defense attorneys, maybe making a strength there, Kool-Aid, we asked for what we believed in, and we got it.
2: Yeah, so I did want to ask about that, because I saw on your your PowerPoint slides that you you filled in the verdict form for them on, on what you thought. Uh, should be awarded and, and we, we do something similar. We usually fill out the verdict form with them uh, and, sh- and show, you know, a, a, at least a range on what we think should be given. Did you hear, uh, you know, and I think John said it was around 45 million. Did you, did the, did you get a chance to talk to the jury about how they came up with the numbers they did? Cause it sounds like, I mean, you got them to where they were um, you know, at the point where they were giving punitive damages. So they, they obviously didn't buy anything the defense said. So how did they, Come up with their damages amount. Did you find out about that?
0: We were in such shock after we heard these large numbers. You know, I, <laughs> when we were told that you know, don't, don't get overconfident, don't think you're going to get over a million dollars in this case. So we asked them a lot of questions about the facts and what kind of stuck out to them, but we didn't even really touch on the damages. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I don't remember touching on yeah. them. Um, yeah. I, I remember we learned while the jury had
1: just left to deliberate. We learned that San Pat was actually a more conservative county in terms of verdict size than, than we thought and that there hadn't been a million dollar verdict uh, or uh, a verdict over a million dollars in any courthouse in San Patricio County in almost two years. And so that kind of freaked us out that we had just asked for 45 million dollars. <laughs> and I knew that there had been some good, you know, factual liability cases. So we go to lunch and we learn about three hours later that the jury had came back. And I I remember pulling John aside right before we walked back in and I said, Okay, the numbers are on the jury charge and the verdict form. There's nothing that we can do to change them. I said, throw your superstitions out the window. I said, tell me what you think it is. I said, there's nothing that you, you say right now that's going to change it. Tell me what you think it is. And he said, I think that we won. And I think that we got 300 grand. Josh
0: <laughs> and, and so I, I Flanagan just freaked me out way too much about this story. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I look at him and I say, are you nuts? And he goes, why? What do you think? And I think it was... He, I felt like we had won. I said, "I think we got three million, maybe. maybe, maybe." And he looks at me and says, "You're crazy, man. You're crazy." <laughs> and I said, "You're right. I am crazy. I, I overshoot." I said, "I'm sorry if I overshot on this case with with our, you know, discussions last night." And he says, "Well, let's go. Let's go inside and listen." Um, so that was kind of the experience that we had walking mm-hmm. into. The courthouse getting to hear the jury verdict and it had to be unanimous to get yeah. punitive damages too so that was something that uh, clearly you have to have a jury when you have people coming from all walks of life uh unanimously voting that there's such wrongdoing and putting a number like 10 million dollars on a punitive damages award after just one day of testimony uh, you know these are smart jurors and and it didn't
0: seem like an accident and I'm driving home after we leave. After it took us about two hours, to actually, even leave the courtroom after we heard this verdict. And Alex is on Westlaw. I'm like, find the largest punitive damage verdict for a personal injury case in San Patricio County. So he's searching and searching, and you know, I think we and found out that was the largest punitive damage award that was awarded in a personal injury case in San Patricio County. It didn't exist.
2: Yeah, and I think we should. Uh, I mean, without telling the story, you, uh, John, you alluded to it that you had. Uh, had the judge tell you, I think that, you know, beforehand that the, he, he had heard some very meritorious cases and the largest verdict he had heard of, I think was 800,000. And so I know that, uh, that brought your spirits down at least a little bit. Yeah. He put the fear of God into us. So that's why $300,000 came out of my mouth <laughs> I was
0: Like we're going to win, but not by a lot. So
2: So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online.
3: Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them and so your website has to look good your content has to be good and that's what digital law marketing can help you with
2: yeah and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website but people type into Google and you don't come up at all they will help with that as well and the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors so If you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm.
3: They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website, and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do.
2: Exactly. And, and you know, the thing. Uh, another thing I like about them is they're they're extremely responsive, as you said. Like, if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day, and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which, without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies, and digital law marketing will not do that.
3: Yes, they're so, awesome.
2: So call uh, Digital Law Marketing, you can call them at 877-916-0644, or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com.
3: And tell them we sent you. Did oh. you all, um, during Vore Dyer, to the extent I guess you're permitted in Texas, were you able to go into a little bit about reading your jury on on their thoughts on punitive damages, their thoughts on large damages award? awards and that kind of thing?
1: Well, so we weren't sure what the extent of what the judge was going to allow for gross negligent conduct. You know, if you ask for a trial to be bifurcated on the punitive damages phase in Texas, it's an automatic. And this was something where the judge quickly ruled after, uh, Vordire that, that, this is not going to be bifurcated because the defendant timely didn't ask. He He never asked for it. And so in Texas, if you ask for a trial to be bifurcated in a timely fashion, then it's automatic. You get the punitive damages phase of your trial heard in a separate manner, which means that evidence and testimony regarding a company's net worth, uh, basically only evidence related to gross negligence will be a part of the second phase of the trial. And the last question the jury will answer is a yes or no to punitive damages. And if they do that's then you will start uh, a short second phase of the trial. So what we were really worried about in Bordire was, how does this conservative county and this jury panel feel about paying and suffering? And are they okay with non-economic damages and awarding um, millions of dollars, like what we're gonna be asking for, for a widow who hadn't been married very long. Um, and, and that was and kind of a funny story. Um, we had a juror raise her hand to one of those questions and we said, yeah, yes, uh, you know, juror number seven. She says, What type of law do y'all practice? <laughs> personal injury law and she said okay because i think my sister hired you for a case no no she thought about hiring you for a case (laughs) um and we made the mistake of saying well what was it a personal injury case she goes oh my gosh well it here's the problem is that y'all just charge way too much she oh my god we didn't yeah. hire you because y'all were like the highest charging plaintiff law firm out of everybody we looked at. So technically
0: she didn't hire you, but I just wanted to know, um,
3: oh my God.
0: then she approaches later when there's a break and says, judge, can I speak with the attorneys? And then she starts asking us questions. Do you, I thought y'all were family law attorneys. My sister was in a divorce, and so it wasn't even our firm, but she just. pointed yeah, out no. Out yeah. Person denied her <laughs> And it was true. A
2: hundred years kind
1: of just laughed. And, and you could tell that the looks on all their faces were that was an unfair blow to y'all. And it felt like they weren't counting it against us because we were laughing ourselves, mm-hmm. saying, What are you going to do when that happens? I mean? Right. Yeah, exactly. I'll
3: tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna freak out. That's
1: what I'm gonna do, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah,
3: internally, internally freak out, out.
1: in mm. San Patricio County. It seemed like one of the many things that we were just about to be on a three day road to endure at that point.
2: <laughs> well, uh, I, I did want to get to so uh, I, I wanted you to tell our listeners a little bit about the history of this case, uh, because. Uh right before the um, podcast, you sent us the defense's motion for new trial. And if I could say that the defense is taking a 180 degree turn on what they are saying about this case, I think that might be an understatement because now they're embracing uh, the fact that your client was working for them and had been there for 17 years and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but my understanding is you told us right before is this was not the first motion for new trial. so. Give us a little history on the case, and then and then we can talk about this uh, the second motion for a new trial.
0: Yeah, so we filed pretty close to the statute of limitations. We tried to get them served as fast as possible. They were dodging our process server. We had to file motions for substituted service, uh, get those orders signed, have these uh, process papers pretty much stapled to their front door, tied, zip tied to their gates. They never responded to the lawsuit, filed for default judgment, brought our client Denise Merez there, put on testimony from her. I mean, Judge Plantingan actually awarded a $1.5 million default judgment. So we were great. We were happy about it. We were about to start getting writs processed, process, start and collect assets. Then on the 30th day, they filed a motion for new trial. So we had the hearing on it. Judge, you know, in this conservative county wanted to give them their day in court. So that was fine. They had their, you know, answer the lawsuit, start doing discovery, go through mediation, and at mediation they only offered, I think, about ten thousand dollars at mediation. So uh, go through trial, then on the thirtieth day, again after we had the judge sign the final judgment order, they filed a motion for new trial with a whole new theories stuff that was never brought up in the past, you know, four years. And the first sentence that we've talked with y'all about already, it says that this is a slip and fall case, which is anything from a slip and fall case. And, yeah, they brought in some new lawyers to to take on the motion for a new trial as well.
2: Yeah. So I think that the, the judge at the end of the day uh, gave you all a favor by granting the first motion for a new trial and allowing you to go try the case because you did uh, quite a bit better.
0: Yeah. And he he hopefully he doesn't hear this, but I hope he does listen to y'all's podcast. But right. <laughs> tell us, um, Yeah, he did kind of give me a nod afterwards, saying, "Aren't you glad I granted the first motion for new trial?" (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) there I was. Thank you, appreciate it. You know, we were just so giddy. We were the last two people in that courtroom, and we just couldn't couldn't leave that courtroom after that verdict was read.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So you so you send us a motion for new trial, and they they now you know uh, basically say, "Yes, it was obvious he was working for us this whole time. So obvious that he should have known." How dangerous this roof was, and this is just your standard slip and fall case, uh, which I'm not sure how they can call it a slip and fall case when you, you know, he falls through a a, uh, a roof onto the floor and not, there's no evidence that he slipped on anything. Uh, but, you know, that's their new argument. And then they also brought up this Chapter 95 exclusive remedy argument. Um, talk through uh, what, what they're seemingly doing now and, and how different that is from the way they tried this case?
1: So it's completely different in the sense that chapter 95 is a uh, defense in Texas that you plead affirmatively if you're a property owner. However, that wasn't done in this case. What chapter 95 says is that property owners cannot be held liable and can always get out on summary judgment if certain elements are met. And and the first element is that they have to be a property owner. And if they had no control or direction of what was going on at the time of the incident, which normally is the case, uh, I will tell you for property owners. And Chapter 95 is a very difficult hurdle to get over if you're trying to sue a property owner or a lessee. Um, if it's a pipeline case or an oil well case, there are a lot of companies that say, well, we leased the mineral rights to this well, therefore we're allowed uh, property owner status and we're exempt. Um, Chapter 95 acts as a total and complete bar for the defendant to get out. Um, I say that because I have a, 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 an obvious kind of anger towards the chapter 95 uh, given that the, the type of law that we practice, but it was surprising in this case to see it pled in the sense that it had never been uh, raised one time. Um, I don't know how they're going to overcome the fact that uh, they were the ones who were directing and controlling every single aspect of the job. They had called them the night before um, chapter 95 works when you have things such as a, general contractor and a subcontractor and you hire a superintendent or a company man to literally have the sole responsibility of directing the work and supervising the means, methods, and techniques of the
0: work. Um, But uh, it was definitely interesting to read that motion. Yeah. Chapter 95 was meant to protect these property owners that leased out their mineral rights to Big oil companies so that they wouldn't be sued because they were getting sued for you know, being injured on people getting injured on their properties. So it, you know, for them to argue chapter 95 now, it, they're just throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. So we'll, we're going to be ready for that. And, you know, they have post post judgment discovery that's due I think next week too. So um, there'll, be, there'll be some more fights that we're ready to fight.
2: Well, uh, you guys certainly did a tremendous job on this case, and, uh, and we wish the best for your clients, and, uh, and hopefully you, you bring this home. Um, is there anything else that we haven't told our listeners that you want to make sure that they know about this, uh, this case?
1: Um, I was actually hoping to talk about how the grandson who was testifying had <laughs> cursed at me while he was on the stand. <laughs> To the point where, again, I had that moment, this being my first trial, where I kind of just freeze and I think to myself, what do you do? Do I object? Do I, and
0: because I, do you wanna? Yeah, this, this guy is a larger gentleman. Um, and Alex is, you know, we're both six six three, six four. so this guy would have probably squished both of us. Um, and he walks off, takes the long way off the, the jury. Or off the witness stand, and he walks right by Alex. And I was kind of like getting raised. I thought he was about to (laughs) bare farm in the head. It was pretty much Alex is just crossing him so great. And I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on here or not. Uh, Yeah, fly, do it. All right, (laughs) yeah. Alex is crossing him, and Alex is just doing great. And um, he finally twists him up a little bit, and he goes really good at turning that shit around, aren't you? Yeah. And like the whole jury's just like gasping, like (laughs) you. Alex just kind of like looks at him, looks at the jury and.
1: I kind of froze in the middle of the well and it was one of the situations where I had to uh, decide, do I ask a follow-up? Or do <laughs> yeah. I say, you know, and I'm thinking about all the great crosses I've seen, you know, uh, my dad is, is known as one of the best cross examiners of all time. And I'm thinking, God, he would probably just roast this guy right now on this. But after I took a look at the jury and they all, looked at me for about Mm -hmm. half a second and focused their eyes back on the witness and their disdain for how he was reacting to the questions, then I knew that I didn't need to push any harder. I didn't need to twist uh, the knife because they were holding the knife at that Mm -hmm. point. um, it was a simple question about OSHA, too,
0: you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> I think the last thing I want to say about this jury, you know, as conservative as they were, they, I think I said it earlier, but they took their job very seriously and they felt like they were lied to at every turn. And that's where the punitive damage came in. That They were right. so mad. They wanted to walk across the hall to the district attorney's office and see if we can indict them for perjury afterwards because that's wow. how mad they were. They. Literally, all of them were like, "Can we go talk with the district attorney?" They all lied at the stand, and and that's in the PowerPoint that y'all have that I pointed out every right. single lie that they said on the stand and throughout their deposition. That's what enraged them the most. That they took their oath very seriously. Uh, you know, we took we take our oaths as attorneys very seriously. The judge does, but every witness they didn't take their oath yeah. seriously at all. They asked us to contact the
1: district attorney after yeah. the verdict was read. Yep.
3: That is, I mean. I mean that's awesome in terms of of how seriously they took it and knowing that they were on your your client side, but I, that's something that we hear, gosh, in almost every episode, juries all over the country, no matter what, is how seriously they took their their job, you know, yeah. and so even when you have those moments like when the guy is is cussing you out and, or, you know, where you can make a spectacle of something or, you know, they're really serious about their time and getting the answers to their questions and, and, you know, don't waste their time. Don't, you know, don't go overboard. Don't lose your credibility. Just get them the information that they want, but having them come up to you and be like, please talk to the DA. That, that uh, yeah, really. tells you you did a pretty good job.
1: Something. Uh, Well, I was just going to say something that we learned about conservative counties was that don't undervalue them because they care about principles and they care about things such as telling the truth, integrity, right right and wrong. (laughs) And it's simple principles that if they feel like one side is violating them, they will take serious action and um, extreme action. As we saw in this case, so um, you know, I don't, I, I don't fear conservative juries
0: because, you know, they believe in right and wrong more than anybody. Mm-hmm.
2: That's right. Yeah.
0: And the last thing I do want to say um, in the opening statement I gave, I gave the whole, this is uh, not a criminal case, civil case, preponderance of the evidence, tipping the scales, all that. So you stole my story. I'm going to steal yours on this one. I'll be quick on it. <laughs> so the night
1: before closing, I said I need to tell you something. You're going to have to amend your statement. You told the jury during opening this was not a criminal case as you were explaining the burden. And he says, I did. I said, Yeah. I said, It was a great job. You explained the preponderance of the evidence, but you said this is not a criminal case. I said, You need to start your closing tomorrow saying "Uh, that is what we thought this was not (laughs) a criminal case. But what we learned yesterday, and sure enough, the way he did it in closing was, Uh, uh, you could tell all the jurors were nodding along and they were believing exactly what um, John was telling them in regard to, uh, you know, it's not our fault that we didn't think this was was a criminal case, but nobody could have expected all these witnesses getting on the stand and perjuring themselves so egregiously one after another. And that was a a great delivery in your closing, I'll tell you. (laughs)
2: Well, very nice job, guys, and, uh, and and fantastic work. Let me just remind our listeners, we've been talking about the case of Mares and Perez versus INR Trucking, Isaac Rodriguez and Rodriguez Trucking. It resulted in an $18 million verdict in San Patricio County, Texas. Uh, and we have been talking to Alex Hilliard and John Duff at Hilliard Martinez Gonzalez out of uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, and you can look them up at hmglawfirm.com. Again, that's HMGlawfirm.com.
0: Thank you guys. Thanks for having us Amazon. appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Yvonne.
3: Thanks guys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict?
2: Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with, or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's gonna be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process and we've also put uh links to uh, those episodes on our great trials podcast.com as well as a a glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website
3: yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. (laughs) Right, exactly.
2: (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
3: we're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say